Am I not switched on? Yes, I am. Okay. Great. So if you could stand up while we read God's word. Um, our reading today is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. This is from the English Standard Version. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word, especially, Lord, in the light of the fact that uh, we are soon to celebrate Christmas, uh, to specially commemorate uh, the birth of your son into our world, a lot, and as we, as this word reminds us a lot, that it's not just about God entering the world, but so much more, uh, that we are also called upon to respond in faith and in our behavior and attitude. And we pray, a lot, that as we go over these uh, verses, that you will guide us and guard our thoughts, and your spirit will enlighten us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. It's always um, challenging to speak the week before Christmas. Right, because uh, you pretty much have an idea what the speaker on Christmas is going to speak, and you don't want to kind of steal his thunder. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's also an opportunity to kind of use you know, the motivation that we have to celebrate Christmas, to think about uh, many things that are associated with it. Right? So one of the things that we can focus on is on the peculiar impact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ on all lives, especially the lives of those of us who claim to be his followers. That is in the church. What does it mean to be a Christian for whom Christmas is not just a legend, but the revealed truth of God, the word becoming flesh to dwell among us? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins and liberate us from the bondage of death by dying on the cross in our place? You know, he rose from the dead three days later and ascended to sit at the right hand of God, he who is coming back one day to claim his people for himself and to rule with them over the universe, universe for all eternity. How are we to live in the light of the fact that Christmas is a historical reality grounded in the truth that God became man? And how are we to live in a world which does not acknowledge that same truth and all of the ethical and moral implications that arise from hearing the God who has spoken once and for all in his son. You know, in, in, in the mid-70s, the Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, actually it was, I believe a series of videos which then became a book, called How Should We Then Live? And his premise is that when we base society on the Bible, on the infinite personal God who has spoken and who is there, it provides an absolute truth by which we can conduct our lives and by which we can judge society. And this leads to what Schaefer calls freedom without chaos. But when we base society on any other truth, and at his time, that was what is called hum humanism, a value system rooted in the belief that man is autonomous, totally independent to make whatever decisions he wants to make, and all values are relative, and we have no way to distinguish right from wrong except for pragmatism and utilitarianism, which means whatever we feel like doing is right. Because we disagree on what is the standard of truth, this leads to fragmentation in society, which leads to the despair and alienation that is so prevalent, especially in Western societies. And that still continues. The passage we read from First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is the theological center of the book of 1 Timothy, perhaps of the entire pastoral epistles, which is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Its highlight is verse 16, the familiar six poetic verses of an ancient Christian hymn sung by the early church, beginning with He Was Manifested, which outlines the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ in the history of the world. Now, the arc of history from Christmas through Easter to the end of all days. But when we look at the context and the verses that surround this magnificent piece of poetry, we realize that Paul's concern in highlighting the glories of Christ is not just to draw out praise and worship, which it undoubtedly does, 
but rather it also makes his listeners, and by extension us who are listening to this word today, consider the ethical and moral implications of being a Christ follower in this world. It is Paul's foundation for his theory on how should we then live. And to lay the context for the great mystery of godliness, as he calls it, I want to first draw your attention to a couple of words in verses 15 and 16. We look at what they mean. First in the chapter 3 and verse 15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. What does the word translated behave mean? Now, if you read multiple English translations, that's probably the most predominant translation. That's a reasonable translation choice, but it conveys or encompasses a greater realm of meaning than what we understand by the modern English word behave. So the Greek word comes from the family of the word anastrepho, which means to conduct oneself, to behave or to live as in a way of life or lifestyle. And Paul uses the exact same word in another passage, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, 3. In in, uh, verse 3, he says, uh, let's read the entire passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, what? Anastrepho, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the word behave here, let's read it. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh because we were children of wrath. It's a way of life. It's a pattern of life. It's a lifestyle. The choices we make in our lives as a result of who we are that reflect our identity, whether we are of the world or of the people of God. Then in Verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we notice the word godliness. And that's a much harder word to define because we all have an idea of what godliness means. And it means uh, religion or piety. And, and we know what religion means. We know what ho- uh, holiness means. That's another word you can use. What does it mean to be godly or holy? And we are all well-versed enough in the Bible to know that Christian religion is not outwardly. It's not primarily having an outward bend. It's not rituals or showpieces that are meant to be viewed by others. Rather, and when you couple it with the word behave, it takes on a more wholesome meaning. As a commentator writes, godliness is the term Paul uses in these letters to his co-workers to describe the wholeness of Christian existence as the integration of faith and behavior. It is, it is the coming together of faith and behavior, that's what godliness is. One without the other is incomplete. So godliness is Christian life, viewed through the lens of both faith and behavior, a faith that has as its necessary consequence a godly behavior, a way of life that brings glory to God. Paul's concern is for his listeners to appreciate that fact and reorient their thinking and seek a transformation in their hearts which leads to a transformation in how they live their lives. So then we ask ourselves, what is this mystery of godliness? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is the mystery? The mystery is the previously hidden plan of God which has now been unveiled the gospel, the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the, the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that historical event lays the groundwork for godliness in that it makes it possible for those who are once by nature children of wrath to now be a part of the family of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ and to live in a manner that is appropriate for people who belong to God and not to the world. And as Paul meditates on the wonder of the gospel, 
as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He does not want us to lose sight of the fact that there is a Christian way of living that is now not just possible, but mandated for those who claim to have been changed by the entrance of God into our world. That's the mystery of godliness, that this gospel, which was hidden in the past, which has now been revealed, makes it possible to live a different kind of life, one that entails godliness. And I want to give you a quick overview of what uh, inspired Paul to write these words. If you read in verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, Paul is concerned here that, you know, he's hopeful that one day he's going to come to Ephesus, which is where this church is located, to meet all of them in person. But he fears that he might not be able to make it there anytime soon. So with a matter of great, it's a matter of great urgency, therefore he writes these things for Timothy to understand and expound, preach to that congregation so that they know how to live their lives. And we ask, why is there this urgency? And it is possible it's because this is a young church with a lot of recent converts who have not been properly trained in the, in the way of life that arises from the faith. But they're also battling a heresy which is propagated by many false teachers who have sprung up in the congregation. And if you read First Timothy and Second Timothy, you'll see a lot of focus on these false teachers. It's a heresy that sought to deny the truth of the gospel in all of its sinner-saving, behavior-changing glory and instead emphasized what Paul calls myths and legends. So that's Paul's concern, that he doesn't want to delay them knowing these things, waiting for him to see them in person. So we ask, what are these things? Well, Paul makes it easier for us to understand that because he says, I am writing these things. It's the content of this whole letter of First Timothy. And as we go through First Timothy, which we have done uh, over the past few weeks, we see his warning against false teachers, his emphasis on the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But we also see his encouragement to the church in chapter 2 to pray for all people, including kings and rulers, so that the gospel may be effective in the lives of others outside. He asks them to lead peaceful, godly lives, He's concerned with the proper relationship between the genders, especially between the husband and wife. He's concerned with proper relationships in the church, between members of the church, and his encouragement for men and women of God to fight the good fight and keep the faith. And a huge section of this letter, which is probably what most people remember about First Timothy, is devoted to the qualification of elders and deacons. Right? Their character, their reputation, their conduct within their own home, be that in marriage or in parenting, their manner of speech, their understanding of the faith. However, as we have seen already, and we have discussed in the past, the qualifications of elders and deacons are not meant to be exclusive. Rather, elders and deacons are supposed to be examples, exemplary models of behavior, which are actually required for all Christians. The elder and deacon is, must be a role model, but they are not the only ones of whom these patterns of living are expected. So these expectations are also a part of these things that Paul is talking about. They are signposts for the godliness that is the goal of all Christians. Now this passage, though it's just three verses, is like, um, it's like a ribeye steak. Does everyone know what ribeye steak is? It's uh, one of the more expensive cuts of steak because it's 1.5 inch steak or 2 inches steak, but it's all meat. There's no bone all meat with a nice marbling of fat on top. So I want to focus on just a few aspects of these verses, a few points and implications that arise from them. And we will look at the passage in two divisions. In verse 15, we look at what is the context of godliness. And then in verse 16, we look at the source of godliness. The context of godliness and the source of godliness. So let's read again 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, the, 
we all know that these epistles are called the pastoral epistles, and they're so called because it's Paul's instructions for the church, the community of God's people, localized in a particular area. So it's his instructions to a local church, specifically the church of Ephesus, in Ephesus, and we see that his concern is for church members to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Now, first off, we obviously need to clarify, and I'm sure you all know this, that he does not literally mean this is how you should behave while you are in church, right? He's not saying this is how you behave while you're in this particular place, but this is how you should behave as part of the church, right? I hope that is clear. It obviously wouldn't make much sense for a parent to be dignified to their children only in the place where the church meets, right? Often it's the other way around. Parents are more stricter with their children in the church than outside. So he's not saying you behave differently when you come to church. He's saying you behave differently because you're a part of the church. So as a member of the community of God, this is how you are to conduct yourself. And another point of interest is how he describes the church as the household of God. The Greek word for use here is oikos, from which we get the English word economy. Um, the Greek word oikos means both house and household, which are interchangeably used. Right? Do we know the difference between house and household? Usually when the word house is used, it means you know, the architectural structure, right? Walls, pillars, foundation, and all that. When the word household is used, it's the family unit that dwells in the house. So house is a structure, household is people. And most often in the New Testament, and especially in Paul, our English Bibles will translate you know, that word as household because it clearly refers to the people and not the structure. But when it comes to defining the church in this verse, you'll see that both of these meanings are in play. You know, primarily, again, it means the people. And how do we know that? Because he goes on to define it as the church, which is the ecclesia, or the assembly of the living God. Immediately after you see, it says the household of God, which is the assembly of the living God. That's the people. But then he also conceives of the church as having a visible structural framework. See, as denoted by it having a pillar and a foundation of the truth. And that is not just wordplay. Do we all know what wordplay is? Wordplay means, oh, I use a particular word and then I use other concepts that are derived from the word. But it's not just wordplay, because in the New Testament, whenever the church is referred to, there's an idea of permanence, of immovability, of solidity attached to the church because it belongs to God. See, the church is not a building. Let's be very clear about that. But it is also not just a collection of people. Because it is, de- it is the church of God, it is dependent on God for existence and not on its constituents and not on its members. The fate of a local church is not tied to the whims and fancies of its people, but on the sovereign will of God, who is its true founder and who indwells the church as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, through his spirit. And why is it important for us to understand this? Because it is wrong, obviously, to conceive of a church apart from its people. And historically, when the local church begins to see itself as an institution to be maintained without giving thought to the well-being of its people, such such churches flounder. That is true. But at the same time, no church is dependent on one member or a group of members for its survival. Because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, Uh, which you'll see the verses on the screen. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The household of God is built on the foundation of the faith that is delivered by the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If the church is dependent on individuals, then there's something wrong with that church as well. So the context where godliness is to be displayed and evaluated is within the household of God, the church. Which means there is no biblical pattern of Christian living 
that is in isolation from the community of God's people. There's no biblical example of a Christian life that can be led apart from the community of God's people. So often you hear, I'm okay with being a believer in Jesus, or I am a believer in Jesus, but I have no desire or patience or time to be with his people. See, such behavior arises from a false view of what the church is. The church is not just some people you don't particularly like. But it is also an incomplete view of who God is. You know, that famous quote from A.W. Tozer goes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so if we believe that God is a triune God, eternally self-satisfied and self-fulfilled and self-complete in the relationship and fellowship of the Trinity, how odd is it when Christians then go on to say that we are self-satisfied in being an island apart from the community that God has established to satisfy our need for relationship. Sometimes we misunderstand what the church is, but we also misunderstand who God is. And that's how we mistreat the church of God. I know another aspect of Paul's definition of the church and related to godliness is its function as a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, I have to be very careful with that word. That's a very weird word. But what is the truth? The truth is the gospel. But the gospel is more than just a message of how to get to heaven. It is a gospel of the living God. See, Paul highlights that. It's a gospel of the living God in opposition to all the dead and false gods of this world. And because God is living, he gives us an objective view of reality that influences our manner of living, our morals, our ethics. And that truth is opposed to all falsehood which comes from all the other gods that are not living in this world. Whether it's a false view of God, it's a false view of his gospel, or a false view of his creation. As Christians, we are to defend the truth that has been revealed by the living God in his word and to pursue its implications in all types of ethical and moral questions. So Paul calls the church a pillar, which is a visible support, and a buttress, which is a foundation of the truth. Now, you would say, wait a minute, we just read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the foundation of the church is the truth delivered to the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ the cornerstone. So now how, how does Paul then go on to say now that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth? And it's very simple really, right? Paul's concern here is in visible defense of the truth. That's why he uses the image of a pillar and of a foundation. See, God is not sending down lightning bolts from heaven to correct falsehood. Or he's not entering into people's minds, usually, to change their false viewpoints. The faith that is once delivered to the apostles and the prophets on the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus is now the possession of the church of God to protect and to pro proclaim. The church is God's lighthouse pointing to true reality. It's a beacon of truth in a world that is built on falsehood. We are the visible protectors of the truth in this world. Now John chapter 1 and verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not just grace, grace and truth. The church of Christ upholds both grace and truth. There's no conflict between the two. We can be gracious to a fallen world and still affirm the truth that might offend them. You know, recently I was reading, I might have read this, uh, there was an article in Canadian newspapers about, you know, the Catholic bishops of Eastern Canada, which I believe is, you know, the Atlantic coast, writing a, a, a letter to their church members on how to deal with euthanasia which is, you know, what people call medicine-assisted suicide or, or mercy-killing, whatever you call it. And they said, well, God has told us to treat everyone with grace, so we are not to judge. We just treat them with grace in their moment of grief. And as I was reading that, in that same article, there was a quote from the American author, uh, Flannery O'Connor, who is also a Catholic, 
And she says, in the absence of faith, in this case she was talking about faith as truth, we govern by tenderness, which is, you could say, another uh, view of grace as, that some people have. In the absence of faith, we govern by tenderness, and tenderness leads to the gas chamber. Now, what she's talking about is that the church in Germany had the opportunity to oppose Nazism, but they said, no, our mandate is to deal with grace. See, whenever the church has ma- swore away from its mandate to proclaim and defend the truth, it has endangered the gospel. And it has endangered the lives of the many who look up and depend on the church. So that's why Paul says, you are a pillar and a buttress, a foundation of the truth. That is the possession of the church. And we are to proclaim it and to protect it. So that's the context of godliness. All godliness is dealt with in the community of God's people. Then we look at what is the source of godliness. See, First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. From the context of godliness, we come to the source of true godliness, the mystery that is the gospel. See, what Paul is saying is that Christian life, Christian existence is only possible because Jesus Christ has come into this world. And great indeed is this gospel, which Paul goes on to attest by using uh, this pre-existing hymn. See, he's quoting these six verses, in, uh, six verses in verse 16 as I would quote a hymn, right? If I were to quote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you would understand what I'm trying to do. He's using language that is familiar to his listeners to draw them into the majesty of the gospel, to invite them to, to ponder upon it and to worship the God who has given it to them and to reflect on its implications for their lives. Now, when we look at this hymn, there are multiple options or opinions how to, how to interpret it, but the, I think the best option is to treat these verses as three couplets, right? Is there any English teachers here? You know what a couplet is? Couplet is a, a two verses, right? Two verses together is a couplet. So we look at it as three sections of two lines each. The first couplet deals with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The second with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And the last with the glorification of Jesus Christ. So the first two lines of this hymn, as quoted here, deals with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The second two lines, that's lines three and four, with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And the last with the glorification of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the incarnation. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. Now the word manifest actually is simply revealed. That's what it means. So the hymn is saying he, that is Jesus, was revealed in the flesh. Now Charles Wesley sang, in heart the herald angels sing. There's a verse which says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And what he was trying to say there is obviously something related to like Philippians chapter 2, right? That, that, that the, whole of, the wholeness of deity was dwelling in this human body. But here we see that the incarnation is not the veiling of God as much as it is the unveiling, the divine revelation of God in the flesh. He was revealed in the flesh. And when we are talking about the incarnation, we are not talking merely about the birth of Jesus, and neither is this him. Right? When we talk about Christmas, and everyone thinks about the birth, just that that night, star, that starry night 2,000 years ago. But when the Bible talks about the incarnation, we are talking about his humanity and his ministry on this earth while he was on it. That includes the birth the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we go through, when we read through First Timothy and the pastoral epistles, it is fascinating. I, I, I would invite you to go and read these three episodes. It's fascinating to see the emphasis that Paul places on the humanity of Jesus Christ. So one example is in verse, uh, chapter 2 of First Timothy, verse 5. It says, for there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man who? The man, 
Christ Jesus. Now, one reason for this emphasis, perhaps, like we said, his, his, his opposition to the heresy in the church that viewed flesh as some kind of evil, physical flesh, and instead elevated a kind of hidden spirituality that was separate from human existence. We call that you know, something like Gnosticism, right? Which is, even today, you find a lot of Eastern uh, lines of thought which are very similar, which views all flesh as evil and elevates a hidden spirituality. But more than that, you see that Paul is continually amazed by the means by which God became man. And that life and death of 33 years, and by the fact that God becoming man makes a new kind of humanity possible. See, when you consider the manner of Jesus' death, uh, Jesus' birth, sorry, he was not born into riches or comfort. He was not born, uh, you know, in a time with medical advances like we have today, right? Instead, he entered the world in the most vulnerable manner possible, as a baby in the womb of a young girl. See, God did not take any shortcuts entering into this world. He did not fall down from heaven, nor did he arrive fully formed. He was conceived, he grew in the womb, and he was born. You know, what's interesting is that in the genealogy of Jesus, if you look back in Matthew, there's one individual who was born to Judah and Tamar named Paris. Now, what's interesting about Paris is that he was born out of a scandal, out of wedlock, as we call it, to Tamar. You know, sociologists today will say, oh, such societies were shame and honor-based societies, which made the lives of those who lived in it vulnerable. And yet, both Paris, born to an unwed mother, and Jesus, born to a betrothed young woman who was not yet married, were born. They survived. Because Jesus was also a fetus. See, according to the Supreme Court of Canada and many other law societies, he had no personhood until he was born. He did not arrive into a welcoming family at the right time. He came into a shame-based society as the baby growing in the womb of a betrothed young woman who was not yet wedded to her husband, Joseph. And yet he was born. See, we live in a society with an infant mortality rate, that means babies who survive till the age of three, of about 4.6 per thousand. That means out of 1,000 births, there are only about 4.6 babies who do not past the age of three. And yet, human babies are more vulnerable in the womb than they perhaps were 2,000 years ago. Their continued existence no longer just determined by nature, but by constitutional rights and medical advances that do not protect life, but instead snuff it out. Now, it's shameful to think that next week there'll be millions of people who'll go to churches singing, wailed in flesh, the Godhead see, who think that abortion is a matter of personal opinion or a matter of tertiary importance, that it would be okay to kill a baby, whatever you call it, because he or she did not arrive at the right time or into the right family. But arrive he did, our Lord, and he was born to Mary and Joseph, and he was born into a life of normal poverty, he lived as one among the people. His sheer, his sheer majesty, his sheer radiance, and the force of his message gave him some fame in Jerusalem and Galilee, but to the rest of the world, which was the Roman Empire, he was just another pretender in a long line of so-called messiahs, another local troublemaker. And then instead of reigning on the throne of Israel, he was hoisted on a cross on Calvary, his life destined to end in the midst of criminals. He was spat upon by those who walked by, he was mocked by the priests. He was humiliated by the very humanity that he had created and invested his image. And he, lied, he died a lonely death. But we know that he did not die any death, but he died the death of all deaths as one who became sin itself. The perfect man who took upon himself the wrath of God to die once and for all in the place of the men and women he had come to save. To save the very sinners into whose midst he had come. And in that 
death, his ministry was fulfilled. And that's what we read in the second line. His life was vindicated by the Spirit. That vindication announced itself when he resurrected from the death to put an end to the dreadful hold of death upon all humanity. He has rendered powerless once and for all the sting and the power of the grave. So in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, we see the same concept. It says, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And has gone into heaven as the pioneer of our faith, the forerunner on our behalf, on the behalf of men and women who no longer have to be chained to the elemental forces of this world, but have been freed to live life in relationship with God who created them and then saved them and then gave them new life. See, humanity is no longer the same in, the, in light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. A Christian life is now possible. We read that the Holy Spirit is once again welcome to indwell in the lives of men and women because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the first two lines talks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The next two talks about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It says it was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. The first line here, seen by angels, is talking about the fact that when Jesus resurrected, he was seen by angels and heavenly parts. When, when Jesus ascended, we read in Acts that they were party to that, to that event, not just the, 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 the disciples who gathered below, but angels. And we read elsewhere in Ephesians that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are witnesses to the resurrection of the Son of God and his ascension into his heavenly throne. It's not just humanity that's been changed by the resurrection, but all the universe. But the second line says, proclaimed among the nations. That is intended here to stand in opposition slightly to the first line, which is seen by angels. See, it's not the angels who proclaim the gospel among the nations, but the people of God, the church that is to do so. It's not those who have seen Jesus in the heavenly realms that testify to his grace and truth among the nations, the Jews and Gentiles of this world, the whole world, but rather those men and women whose lives have been transformed by that same grace and truth. So we read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, he, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's what it's talking about. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. In the New Testament, in the history of the early church, we see the integrated, holistic focus of the church on worship, on personal salvation and transformation, and evangelistic missions. You know, another commentator says about this, says Christology, which is the, with the understanding of Jesus Christ, develops naturally into missiology, which is an understanding of missions. Because the gospel is the fulfillment of God's promises to the world. And the gospel needs to be taken into the world for God's promises to have an effect. You know, in our modern day, we seem to have a tension between personal transformation and missions. It seems like we have to choose or doing both is unrealistic, or one will negatively impact the other. But for Paul and for his listeners at that time, there was no such separation. Both were to coexist and develop harmoniously because missions without transformation is hypocrisy. And transformation without missions is selfishness. See, John Piper says that missions exist where the worship of God doesn't. As long as there are people and places who are not worshiping God in the manner that he deserves to be worshiped, there will be missions. Whether we do it or not. So that just as the truth is the possession of the church to be protected, missions is the mandate of that same church. So the last two lines it says, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This talks about the glorification of Jesus Christ. You know, it focuses on the inevitable result of the incarnation and its proclamation, which is the glorious, everlasting reign of our Lord and Savior. See, the day will come when the whole world will acknowledge the Lamb that was crucified, whether that is by the advance of the gospel or because that same Lamb will come back at the end of days to judge the nations, so that, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He who came into the world to save sinners 
will be believed on in the world. One way or the other, that's going to happen. He who was taken up in glory 2,000 years ago will reign visibly as the Lord of all creation. And we who are his people will be co-regents with him because those who have shared in his sufferings will also share in his glory. That is the promise of the gospel as you read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. In the glory of Jesus Christ rests, rests the hope of his redeemed people in the midst of trial and suffering and opposition. So this great mystery of godliness, this new mode of humanity, that is our Christian life, is founded on the person and the work and the glory of him who is God revealed in the flesh. His incarnation redeems our humanity. His proclamation becomes our mandate. And his glorification is our expectant hope. So what? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. What are we to do in the light of this great mystery of godliness? How are we to evaluate these things that Paul wrote are to be the conduct of the members of the Christian community? What is our ongoing response to this Christian life that is made possible by the Christ event, as some scholars call it, that is Christmas and Easter and soon the second coming? First off, let's talk about the truth that we are to defend. Do we fully understand it? Do we fully comprehend the implications of the gospel, not just for our inner man, but also for our church, our family, and the, and the world around us? You know, we, are we holding on fast to the faith that was once revealed, or have we slipped in our grip on it? We live in a time where, you know, we keep saying post-truth, right? In the past, people said, I think, therefore I am. Now people say, I believe, therefore I'm right. See the difference? In the past, you could have an opinion on what the truth is, and that is okay. Now you have to respect everyone's truth as being truth. Are we concerned about taking the real truth that's given by the living God to others? Are we apprehensive in how the world will receive us when we proclaim this truth to them? Are we confident in telling them that truth comes from God, and that it is a possession of his church, and it is not just a private holding, but rather an objective reality that cannot be moved by the currents of history. Are we ready for a future in which the truth is not just offensive and incompatible with the patterns of society, but it will be offensive and illegal for a future in which we might have to give up a lot just so that we can hold on to this truth? Are we ready to prepare our children for a future in which we had to tell them, no dear, that profession is not right for you because if you carry that profession to its logical end, you cannot remain an affirming Christian. And if you remain an affirming Christian, you cannot carry that profession to its logical end. Are we ready to prepare our next generation for a future, for such a future by pointing them to the higher reality and joy of a Christian existence, even if it means the loss of worldly possessions and opportunities. But what interests me more today is, is personal conduct. The personal transformation that Paul talks about throughout these episodes. Now we're talking about children. You know, as a young parent, it has become apparent to me that parenting is the one realm in which it is impossible to proceed with harmony without some type of personal transformation, some shedding of bad patterns of life, whether that be idleness or anger and temperament, without some change in conduct. Because when you have kids, you realize that you can only fake it for so long. See, the New Testament has a lot to say about godly family lives, and especially about godly parenting. You know, elders are asked to manage their households with dignity, Fathers are asked not to provoke their children to anger, to, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then I'm asked to model a lot of other qualities, be that faithful work without idleness, a proper relationship with wealth and money, a sacrificial love for my wife. And all of these go against my instincts as a human being in this fallen world. And yet, as Paul says, this is how we are to conduct ourselves in the Christian life, with godliness. And I was reading a book recently called Hillbilly Elegy. It's a very famous book which came out um, last year. It talks about this guy who was, who was born in poverty in Appalachian uh, United States, which is like Ohio, you know, communities that have been destroyed 
you know, by, by the loss of factory jobs and instead have fallen into the spit of, of, of drug abuse, broken families, and so on. And, and somehow he comes out of that, you know, undergoing a lot of trauma in his childhood, to, to, to get into the Marines. And then once he comes out of the Marines, he goes into to Yale Law School and becomes a lawyer, like a really well-to-do, successful lawyer. And then what he finds is that even in his success, he's still angry. He still lashes out at people. So he goes and sees, uh, you know, he talks to a, a lot of psychologists. And psychologists says what he has, or what he had, was something known as ACE, A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experiences. What are these adverse childhood experiences? They are traumatic childhood events, and their consequences reach far into adulthood. And the trauma need not be physical. The following events are some of the most common ACEs. Being sworn at, insulted, or humiliated by parents. Being pushed, grabbed, or having something, something thrown at you. Feeling that your family didn't support each other. Having parents who are separated or divorced. Living with an alcoholic or a drug user. Living with someone who was depressed or attempted suicide. Watching a loved one be physically abused. The reason I brought that up is not, just because, is not because our primary concern is to raise good kids. Okay, that, that is, that is the, 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 the realm of the sovereignty of God. But because these kinds of examples are proof positive that the Bible's mandates are not just theoretical, but practical. That Christian living is, is not just about appearances that differentiate us from others, but rather about contact that is beneficial to everyone who comes in, co- in contact with us. See, too often we think that behavior, as expected by the New Testament, is only valid because we are Christians. But the reality is that the, the behavior that God mandates us to do has benefits. You know, there's one verse in First Timothy that a lot of young people know how to exegete very well because it has something to do with going to gym, right? It says, it's First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 to 11. It says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe, command and teach these things. Godliness has value, not just in heaven, but it holds promise for this life as well. See, the reason all this disharmony exists in the world, like they have all this research, they have all of these things, and yet doesn't seem to change is because they do not believe the truth and they do not believe in the God of truth. Instead, they believe that biology is destiny, that genetics, your genes are destiny, that the way I feel is justification to live and act in a certain way without considering the needs of others. And too often we have also brought into the, bought into the lie of the world that who I am is who I will be and the only option is for others to accept it. We have let go of the biblical mandate to transform ourselves, to behave in the way we ought to behave as part of the household of God. Now, I don't want to sound like Joel Osteen. I definitely don't have his teeth. The point is not just to become a better you. You cannot just trust in the power of I am followed by whatever you say to change you. That is another form of selfishness, convincing ourselves that change is easy and that breaking the hold of the world on our thinking and patterns is a matter of words. See, change is hard. It involves me letting go of things that have defined me, that I've allowed to become a part of my identity in order to attain the godliness that is available to me in Christ Jesus. See, when I fall into temptation, I can choose to say that this is who I am, that I will indulge myself. Or, I can believe in the Bible when it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then without conf- with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. There's a way that the world offers, which is that what you do in private, as long as it doesn't affect anyone else, is okay. And that there's the Christian way, which is to run to the Savior 
who promises to sympathize with us in our weakness and help us and give us mercy and grace in our time of need, broken, saying that I cannot do this on my own, but I trust in you to do it in me. Or I can affirm myself in whatever I think that I am, or I can believe that I've been given a Holy Spirit who counsels me, who comforts me, but does not affirm me in my sinfulness, but rather promises that I cannot be conformed to the image of this world, but that I can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is a promise of the scripture, that the Holy Spirit is able to change our conformity to the patterns of the world and transform us in line with the patterns of God. What are we willing to give up in order to lay hold of the godliness for which God came into the world and died? You know, the theologian Karl Barth says this about Christmas. He says, loving us, God does not give us something but himself. And in giving us himself, he gives us his only son. And in giving us his only son, he gives us everything. That is the cost by which me and you have been redeemed and have been set free to pursue a life of godliness. What holds us back? In the next week, we will celebrate the birth of our Savior with gusto. But this week and every week, let's consider what it means to be a follower of the one who is God revealed in the flesh. May his name be glorified. Father God, we want to thank you a lot for your word that is so full of truth and grace that offers us hope that, that we can escape from the clutches of this fallen world and also offers us the truth, O oh Lord, that it is indeed possible to live a godly life, not on our strength, not on our own merits, but in the fact that we are found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was manifest in the flesh, who was vindicated in the spirit, O oh Lord, who was taken up in glory, believed on in the nations, that he is our Savior and that he has promised us not just of, a, of an eternity spent in, in, in his presence, but rather, O oh Lord, that we can have a different kind of life even in the present. And that godliness that we seek to attain, may that be our goal as we celebrate the arrival of our Savior into this world. And we pray, O oh Lord, that whatever holds us back, whether that be our own self-identity or whether that be patterns of sin and temptation, that we can give them up and take hold of the promises that are ours in your scripture to run to you for grace and mercy and, and to allow the work of the Spirit to proceed in our lives to transform us. And may that be our testimony to each other in our families and in this church in the, in the year coming ahead a lot. Pray a lot for safety as we turn back and for the week ahead that we'll be good witnesses for your truth in the world outside. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.